Hello? Um, there's a very famous line in a Greek tragedy where one of the characters comes in and begins speaking and then says, if you cannot understand my language, will you please tell me so? Uh, so, you know, if, if I hope people can hear me. My name is Dana Joya, and it's my privilege this uh, tonight to introduce the 16th Pan New Writers Evening. Uh, I could tell you a lot of things that are wrong about uh, literary New York, uh, and I'm sure that all of you could add things to that list. But if I were asked to talk about some of the things that are right, I think that the Pan New Writers Evening series would be one of the things on the top of my list. It's a rather remarkable series uh, which invites established writers not to talk about their own work, but to present to the public the work of new writers who have not yet published a book. My own role uh, this evening is very limited. It's both functional and, I think, symbolic. Uh, it's functional in that I'm to wake you up, uh, quiet you down, uh, because probably most of you, like me, have spent you know uh, eight or ten hours today in an office building or in a classroom or behind the counter of a deli. Uh, and it's also to introduce the four established writers uh, who will be making each in their turn uh, their own introduction of a new writer this evening. They will no longer, as you will probably see from your program, be appearing in alphabetical order, uh, but because of the exigencies of social life, we will be beginning with uh, Bharati Mukherjee, uh, followed by Lindsay Abrams, Kenneth Koch, and Grace Paley. My role this evening is symbolic in that... Uh, in my salad days, I was, uh, you know, one of the first people to appear in the New Writers series. Uh, you know, one evening I got a phone call from Scott Mamaday, uh, a poet and a novelist who, while I had read, I had never met, and he invited me to read uh, at this new thing called the Penn New Writers series, and it didn't take much convincing. Uh, and it, for me, it was a very wonderful evening. Uh, it was one of the first pieces of evidence that I've had uh, that somebody not tied to me by the bonds of affection or blood uh, was actually reading my poetry. Uh, and the evening itself, I thought, was a rather special one. Uh, in fact, three of the four writers that read that evening have gone on to achieve perhaps not worldwide fame, but a certain estimable success. And in fact, two weeks ago in the New York Times Book Review, I read a very good review of Pamela Zoline, who had read that evening, her uh, new sh book of short stories, which has uh, gotten, from what I can tell, nothing but good reviews. And a couple of days ago, I got the proofs to a new anthology of poetry, which had poems by Melissa Green, uh, who read that evening, who's also got, uh, published a very good book of poems with Norton. So uh, for the new writers this evening, I can, I can assure you that not all of you end up like me, uh, but most of you are successes, uh, and so I think it was a, uh, a you know, a, it's a rather wonderful and I think uh, gracious series that Penn has sponsored for this. Uh, speaking of graciousness, I would also like to thank uh, Encarnita Quinlan of, and the, the staff of Endicott Books for turning over uh, the, their bookstore this evening to this series. Uh, I think that's very generous of them, and once again, it's, it says that there are some things right. Uh, about the literary scene right now. So without further ado, uh, I will you know, turn the, uh, the microphone over to Bharati Mukherjee to introduce the first new writer of the evening. Thank you very much.
If there are bad aspects to the literary life in New York, I haven't discovered them yet. I wish I could describe to you how much I love the city and how, perhaps unjustifiably, I feel at home here. And if I hadn't been born a Bengali Brahmin in Calcutta, I'm sure I would have been born a Jewish in, uh, a woman in New York. My profound apologies to the readers, the listeners, and the organizers for disrupting the prearranged order of readings and for having to rush off after Jean Eyre's story. But it's an unexpectedly special night for me. Only once in a lifetime does a writer get asked to write the fictional screen version of her autobiography. And that's the project I'm rushing off to finalize this evening. I've taught fiction workshops for over 20 years in most parts of this continent. And in those two decades of teaching, I've encountered scores of talented young writers. In America, talent is stunningly abundant. In fact, the abundance embarrasses and overwhelms the publishing industry. And too often, editors set up secure little, safe little categories and back away from writers with the wrong credentials. For example, writers from the wrong, unfashionable ghetto or writers of the wrong, unfashionable age. In this youth-worshipping continent, Jean Eyre is a late starter, perhaps. I can't claim the honor of having detected her talent first because it was my husband, the writer Clark Blaze, who first saw Jean's fiction in uh, uh, Columbia and brought home the worksheets of Jean with great enthusiasm. She writes with passion and with an energy that's stunning. She writes out of a great urgency and, better still, she's prolific. The stories keep tumbling out as though she's making up for lost time. And best of all, she has what few writers have in this country or any country, tremendous drive, tremendous stamina, and tremendous discipline. Her fiction shows not just talent and narrative skill, but that rare moral strength that faces down adversity. So I give you a very special writer, Jean Eyre. After that, I'm afraid to read. <laughs> I have a story here. Is this okay? I've never used one of these. I'd rather stand up. I have a story called Grief. I'm putting you back here, Laura said. Not hello, Phoebe. Not, Lord, it's good to see you after all this time. Not, how was your trip? And didn't old, old friends kiss when they met? Laura ducked Phoebe's lips and led the way around a corner into a hallway lined with teak and glass cases. Phoebe, trailing behind, saw Zeke's Olmec statues in the cases, Zeke's fragments, Zeke's shards. On the pale grass-cloth-covered wall were photographs of Zeke's digs. In the time it took them to walk from the door to Laura's guest room, the storm turned the sky dark. It was only six o'clock. In the same voice in which she'd said she was putting Phoebe back here, 
Laura said. You'll want a bath after that drive. You know where the liquor is. There's ice. Phoebe said, you don't have to have me, Laura. I'd have been all right in a motel. I was all set. Laura's smile was thin-lipped, her eyes glittery. She measured Phoebe's old slicker, her faded jeans, her worn sneakers. Why, you couldn't stay in a hotel, Phoebe, honey, Laura said, not after all these years. Not in this town, not while I'm here. It's Zeke's death that makes Laura so strange, Phoebe thought. It's only been two weeks. I shouldn't have come. Where are you, honey, Laura said when Phoebe called about Zeke. Nobody's had any news from you. What are you doing? In the sound of a familiar voice, all Phoebe's life had passed before her eyes. She'd seen the island, heard sails shaking, halyards slapping. She'd smelled, smelled lupins, pines. She'd come near to crying. After she said what was necessary about Zeke, she should just have hung up, but she and Laura had talked. They talked an hour. How were Laura's boys? How was Laura's brother Gus? How was Worry? Did Worry get into Brown? What are you doing, Fee, honey? We've all wondered about you. I'm coming home, Phoebe had said, backed off, started again. I'm coming to Maine, she said in a calm voice, to take the last of my things out of the house. Warren's keeping the house. You'll have heard that. There had been a silence. Where will you stay? In the house, I suppose. Where else would she stay except in the house? Oh, you can't do that, Laura cried. Can't, she pronounced it. Why, you can't stay in the house, honey, Laura had said. Why, Warren loves you. Stay with me. Phoebe set out her toothbrush, the night guard that kept her from grinding her teeth in her sleep, and the small, precious vial of Valium. In Laura's guest bathroom, heavy lucite racks held towels with Laura's monogram deep in sea-green pile. Phoebe hadn't been in a room like this for a year. She'd forgotten how she used to live. She'd packed as if she were going on a picnic. Only back to Maine, she'd thought. Only back to the house. She'd need sweaters, wool socks, stuff to pack with. She stared down at her worn jeans, her slicker, her old sea bag. She'd filled the Dotson with empty liquor cartons, rolls of tape, twine, shears, lists of the lists of the stuff she'd take out of the house tomorrow under Warren's eyes and the eyes of his lawyer. Her books, her clothes, photographs, 25 years of accumulation in a house she'd never intended to leave until the morning she did it. She'd popped out of marriage like a cork out of a bottle. She imagined Warren in the house, sitting in his father's Morris chair, a triple, no, a quadruple martini within reach, reading the Naval Institute proceedings. On the wall, his father's samurai sword. On the bookcase, his grandfather's sextant. In the woods outside the window, the boxer dogs were buried under flat granite markers like, like human children. At the foot of the lawn, the sea crashed. Phoebe let the slicker fall to the floor, pulled over her head the old green Lacoste shirt worn to pinholes along the seams, faded to a chalky near white on the shoulders. The reason Laura looked at me the way she did is she thinks I've gone to pieces. And in a sense, I have. And this is Laura's guest room. Here is where the outer bridges stayed before they built their house in Seal Harbor. Here was where Laura's good-looking brother Gus slept when he came east. Here was Laura's version of her view, her bay, her main. She felt drained. The scene outside the sliding glass windows had a greenish, stagey light like that old painting of the storm sweeping up Soames Sound, a queer luminousness that picked out things in the room, 
old-fashioned silver ornaments, a green silk pincushion, things she'd expect in a guest room in her, old, in her old life. The sky darkened as if someone turned down a rheostat. Laura's lawn was a neon shade of green. Near the rose-colored granite parapet stood Zeke. Our child bride, Zeke said, catching sight of Phoebe inside the window. She saw him clearly, his shy, narrow face and yellow dinner jacket, the, the bucket-shaped glass in his hand, a design of wood ducks on the side, scotch whiskey glowing like topaz in the spooky light. And why shouldn't she see Zeke out there? Why wouldn't he hang around this house he built before he ever heard of Laura Kilgore? On your own without us, Fee, Zeke said. Laura's going to be okay, but what about you? I'll be all right. Will you? Warren's money is inherited. Does it matter where it came from? You'll see if it matters when you go before a main judge, Zeke said. You never thought of the legal side of divorce, did you? You look scared. I am scared. On the lawn, Warren appeared wearing the old summer tuxedo that had been his father's, the one he'd had the tailor in Cambridge who had been his father's, too, recut. Warren's ruddy cheekbones and rugged nose made a hot, bright note next to fair, fair tender-skinned Zeke against the greenish light. Phoebe's changed, damn it, Zeke, Warren said. There's something wrong with her. I don't know what it is. A whole party was going on on the lawn. Phoebe heard the clink of glasses, smelled bacon, grilled oysters, the woody fragrance of scotch, and overall the salt tang of the sea. She was close to tears. She had driven since morning in the rain, bringing the storm with her from Boston, from the run-down old house on Commonwealth Avenue with its sooty privet hedge, its magnolia shedding petals, petals like dirty white leather. She hadn't known how tired she was, how chilled, shocked even. Being in Maine again was like a blow. She sank to the level of her chin in Laura's luxurious tub and closed her eyes. On the lawn, Laura wore a flowered dress with insertions of white linen that showed her tanned breasts and a necklace of watermelon tourmalines like green and rose gumdrops. Her pale hazel eyes echoed the stone's clear green. Warren, honey, come sit by me, Laura was saying. Tell me everything, Warren, honey. Tell Laura where it hurts. Lightning zigzagged down the sky. Phoebe started and a flood of bath water shot across the floor. A tub was the last place she ought to be as well. The four worst places in electrical storms were windows, fireplaces, telephones, tubs. She jumped up and hugged Laura's big towel around her, heavy and comforting as a fur rug. Laura switched on the TV, touched a match to the fireplace logs. Flames shot up and were reflected in windows at the end of the room. A TV voice roared, small craft advisory from Nantucket Island to Yarmouth, bar barometric pressure, 30 and falling. Over the TV voice, Laura said, I hear you're getting a chunk of capital. The words were Warren's. Phoebe could hear him saying, she's hitting me up for capital. She could see him leaning on the mantel, lighting his pipe. And why, after 25 years of marriage, shouldn't I get a chunk of capital, Phoebe said. And Warren's old joke, the Boston spinster visiting her sister in a suite at the Georges Sank in Paris. My dear, how do you do it? I've taken up prostitution. What a relief. I thought you were living on capital. I'd like a drink, Phoebe said. There's the bar. War Laura waved a hand. Warren came to Zeke's funeral, Laura said. He flew back from St. Croix. He called. He sent flowers. 
There's nothing wrong with Warren that hasn't always been there. He's just a little older is all. He hasn't changed. He doesn't drink any more than he ever did. He was wonderful about Zeke. Winds to 30 knots, bawled the TV voice, the Coast Guard weather station in Southwest Harbor, Phoebe's weather station, her Southwest Harbor. Winds gusting to 45 knots, seas building. Laura strode across the room and flipped the TV off. Red light from the flames reflected points in her pale eyes. Fee, honey, you ought to put yourself in Warren's place. You hurt his pride. His pride, Phoebe said. Laura tipped her glass forward and backward, making the straw-colored whiskey swirl. Since you say I can have a drink, I guess I'll get one, Phoebe pushed herself up from the sofa. In Zeke's bar, a yellowing cartoon showed a drunk clutching a bottle, squinting at a woman in a doorway. Phoebe chose a glass, splashed white wine into it. The caption under the cartoon read, Welcome to my parlor, said the flighter to the spy. Arrows were drawn on the cartoon in faded ballpoint from the man to the woman and back again from the woman to the man. Phoebe looked for a napkin. Did the arrow suggest the positions of the two people in the cartoon be reversed? That the disapproving woman in the doorway should instead sit clutching the bottle? The man at the table should watch disapprovingly from the door? The light was so strange, the lack of pressure in the air made her feel lightheaded. Was it the house itself that affected her? This room, its walls lined with books, Zeke's books. She'd borrowed lots of them. Books on birds, books on geology, books on weather, novels. Laura hardly read anything more serious than a garden club bulletin. Phoebe had come to Laura's house so many times wearing bright summer cotton evening skirts, gold bracelets, pearls, her skin warm with a boat race sunburn, Warren at her side. Time couldn't be turned back. Warren couldn't not be an alcoholic. Zeke couldn't not be dead of a heart attack. And she, Phoebe, couldn't not be here in this familiar room, pale-faced, dressed like a kid on some lured island beach, equipped to pack up her old life. Once, after lots of drinks, she and Laura had let their hair down, or Laura had. Phoebe was always spilling her guts to whoever would listen. This day that Phoebe remembered, Laura said she ran off at 17 with a man who beat her. You mean physically beat you, Phoebe had asked, and Laura smiled, amused at Phoebe's innocence. With a lacquered fingernail, she lifted her lip to show teeth small and even as a child's. These two are fakes. He broke my jaw. After that, I swore the next man I'd find would be good to me. Good to me and rich. That had been Zeke. A movement outside the windows caught Phoebe's eye. Tell her, Zeke said. All she hears is Warren's sigh. Tell her what your chunk of capital is. Tell her what Warren's keeping. Tell her how you live. She thinks you dress like that deliberately to get pity. Phoebe said, Laura, I remember when things were ten tense in this house. I remember one summer you said you had no privacy. Do you realize when I go to the John Zeke follows me, you said? Do you realize he stands outside the door talking? I remember the day you said that. We had a picnic. There were raspberries on the bluffs. Warren steamed lobsters. We rafted up the boats. You had brown hair then. Phoebe looked at Laura's blonde hair in surprise. Her own mother, going gray, had tended her hair blonde. She felt a twinge of pity. Your twins were two years old. I was pregnant with Warren. That was 20 years ago, Laura said. If I'd left Zeke, I'd have been nobody. And you're nobody now. You've stepped off the edge. Look at you. Phoebe held out her palms to the flames. A log fell forward on the hearth. The movement reflected in the big window made the two women turn their heads simultaneously, but there was no one there. 
Laura forked eggplant slices onto a plate. Leftovers, she said. I asked Jess and Helen. They didn't think they ought to come under the circumstances. You didn't have to tell me you asked Jess and Helen, Phoebe said. If that's for me, I can't eat all that. It's not for you, Laura jabbed her fork at the other plate. There's yours. Lightning flashed around the room, followed by a crash. Laura flung down her fork. That hit something, she said. Laura's footsteps pounded overhead. Phoebe heard doors flung open, slammed shut. She opened a door on Springsteen posters, tennis rackets, sail bags, a bathroom papered in designs of seamen's knots, backed into the hall and collided with Laura. Nothing, Laura said, panting. Nothing, Phoebe said. I thought it hit something. I thought it did, too. The first drops of water hit the window pane. Listen, Laura, I left Warren because he drinks, that's all. Aren't you supposed to smell something when lightning strikes, Laura said. You won't admit that, Laura, because if you do, you'll have to take a look at yourself. Phoebe's mind adjusted to the insight. She did, in fact, smell something. It did strike something, Laura. The two women stood staring at each other. A rush of water struck the house. Outside the window, the bay vanished in the downpour. I looked everywhere, Laura said. The patch of clear sky in the west grew. Its reflection spread like a rose-colored stain on the water, filling the dining room with pink light. The eaves dripped. There are fifteen widows on this island, Laura said. Phoebe reached a hand across the table. Poor Laura. You and I ought to comfort each other. Zeke had a sneaker for you, Fee, for years. Phoebe sat listening to the steady running of water. From the gutters, from the house's eaves, water from a downspout flattened the grass. If he did, he never said anything about it, she said. Morning sunlight struck glints off the silver ornaments in Laura's guest room. At the foot of the lawn, the sea was the dark, white-flecked blue of midsummer. A gardener raked the debris of yesterday's storm. Phoebe gave the room a final look and carried her sea bag into the hall, set it by the door, and went on with her used towels toward the back of the house. In the kitchen, a strip of bacon fried slowly in a pan. An unbroken egg lay on the counter next to a tray set for one. In the Dotson, she wrote, Dear Laura, she retraced the comma, recapped her pen, sat running it absently between her fingers. What could she write? I know how hard it was for you to have me so soon after Zeke's death. I realize I left myself wide open not writing to any of you. You seem to think I left Warren on a whim. Pine needles from the night storm pasted the windshield. At the end of the gravel turnaround, a pickup truck idled. Laura's gardener, Phoebe thought. A delivery man or the person who put the bacon to fry and placed the egg in the tray on the counter. She and Laura had shared a cleaning woman years ago. Phoebe could see the woman's face, but she couldn't remember her name. She'd had a drinking problem, too. Laura's voice at the Dotson's open window said, There's where the what the lightning hit. She gripped the car's window frame and pointed at the hillside. A spruce split from top to bottom, stood out among hundreds of its mates, its bark ripped to shreds. Laura thrust her face into the car. Her lovely pale hazel eyes swept fiercely over Phoebe. Goodbye, honey, she said. thinking a few days ago of what I wanted to say about Martha Bear's stories tonight, I realized that all I've read of hers has created a particular density in my mind, 
clearly this place mirrors the world, the landscape of the writer, but it's also a part of myself that I couldn't otherwise have recognized. I consider these parts of ourselves to be approachable only through language, not in its connotative function, but as a kind of song we respond to in kind with feeling. Reading a fine writer makes us self-conscious in the best sense of the word. Martha Bear's stories cannot be accused of realism. I think of them as reflecting humanity through a prism so that her concerns and characters seem true to life while viewed from an odd angle. In this way, behaviors and necessities that are usually camouflaged suddenly offer themselves up for scrutiny. Reading Martha, one has a sense of, of observing a game whose rules we don't entirely understand. This is, of course, a definition of life, though seldom except in art do we remember that. What I find most startling about Martha's fiction is her vocabulary of human relations, call it love, that vast spectrum of response between two people who recognize their spiritual proximity, the push and pull of that response from the necessity of speech to silence to fantasy is often at the heart of Martha's stories, both in subject matter and in form. Certainly, it's the reason for her luminous prose. I'm very happy tonight to be here to have a chance to introduce, to introduce such a fine writer, and I thank both Penn and Endicott for the opportunity. Martha Bear. Hi. This is a shortened version of a story called Intelligence the Man. <clears throat> Born in 1917 in a small town of modest men and little-known vistas, avid Gellerman grew to become one of the most powerful figures of his day. There is no measuring the reverence and loyalty inspired by this man, who was not merely a guiding force in American film, but was also an informal spokesman for the working class and the schizophrenic. Gellerman, at the peak of his career, was considered by some an artist, by others a businessman, and still others referred to him as a philosopher, a nature lover, and a family man. Like a gem of many facets, Gellerman's spirit reflected in the lives of his admirers from many different angles. Few other characters of his time stood for such a multiplicity of virtues, and perhaps no other man ever has sustained as shining a career with his consistency and grace. Originally from Odessa, Gellerman's father left Russia in 1914. His young wife, then only 15, was itching to get to America. She was sexy and charismatic, a real joker. She had two baby chickens, which, not without a fuss, she left behind, and which later, through her last years, she referred to as models for everything, from strength and gentleness to the will to social change. As a very old woman, she was tiny and died in a nursing home where the little bulletin board at the head of her bed was filled with bunches of dried flowers hung by thumbtacks and ribbons. Little Avid was an enigmatic yet spirited child, according to the neighbors, in, particularly, in particular Ms. Faye Kin, 
who was a widow and who marveled at the independence and determination with which Avid transformed her linen closet into a model skyscraper. She allowed him to empty out the top shelf where he hung a sign marked Observatory, and by tidying the other shelves so that half the usual space was necessary, Avid managed to construct miniature desks and offices, storage rooms, a high-ceilinged lobby, and a spot for himself, well-crouched in the top-floor director's offices. Educated at Swampscott Regional, where he was a star in the hurdles and active in the background of student government, and then later at Highfield's Men's College, Avid Gellerman soon left his native Boston and went west. In 1940, he arrived in California. It was good to see a Jew on the sand. Three years later, in 1943, he appeared in his first full-fledged movie. This was the beginning. Although his most significant participation in the making of Whispers of a Hero was on the unseen production side of the film, the little bit part he played in the tennis sequence served him remarkably well. It was this one-minute appearance as a line judge who, when the second seed player is injured, delicately lays his hand on the athlete's forehead, lifts him with the elegance of a penitent savage on the verge of grace, and looks wet-eyed for a split second into the camera that marked Gellerman as far more than an off-the-set champ. The critics loved him. The press was flooded with praise. Key notices closed with impassioned declarations and leading questions such as, keep an eye on so-and-so, and who's the new star, and sure worth a thousand reels for a single glimpse of this Adonis. From that moment on, Gellerman's magical and intense public light began brightening, spreading nationwide through the newsstands and into homes, across the disciplines, and deep into the dreamy nights of his admirers. By 1965, he had participated in the production of 13 of the era's most lauded movies. He had backed the establishment of two active charitable or organizations. In 66, he began a yearly television telephone to support the mentally ill, the only one of its kind in which he engaged manic depressives in poignant curative interviews, directed schizophrenics in lively mini-musicals, and read with a deep tenderness epic poems by psychotics brought to reason. <laughs> with his career fully underway, however, Gellerman thereafter retained a measure of privacy. In contrast to the enormity of his contribution, the actual public appearances and quoted statements were few. In fact, aside from the yearly telethon, Avid Gellerman appeared secretive, almost shy. Photos were rare, except in speeches eloquent, but terse. From the 50s on, and particularly in the early 70s, Gellerman's real motive seemed impossible to penetrate. His message was beautiful, but sometimes confusing. In short, the aura was mysterious. Although his name, even the initials A.G., were immeasurably evocative for the many who loved him, the man himself, finally, the deeper purpose, real soul, was hazy. The image is hazy. To the right, a long black car is parked beside a fountain. Everything is black and white and poorly focused. On the left, a door is opening, one side of broad double doors. Someone is pushing it open, and he is coming out, not all of him visible. One shoulder of the dark suit is still hidden. The image disappears and then repeats itself several times. It is Clarice imagining it. Clarice lies half-covered, sometimes seeing, but not quite able, in this light, to finish, to achieve the narrative. Sometimes she opens her eyes and sees the blank, dimly lit ceiling. It seems to be losing its whiteness with the time of day, 
somehow a reproach, a sign of error. She doesn't mean to be in bed. It is early evening. She turns over and skips to the next part of it, the part where he sees her. Now she is leaning against the fountain, not peaceful, slightly tense, but fully herself in every possible way. This is the real Clarice. She hears this in her head, in her own voice, with emphasis, as I really am, the real me. She cannot see herself, however. She, Clarice, is not actually pictured in the fantasy. He sees her. Now he has entirely emerged from the doorway, and he was wearing an overcoat. He sees her, and a kind of thoughtfulness over his brow clears, and he smiles. Clarice does not stand up straight. She continues to lean against the fountain. She knows perfectly well that he will come to her. Even in her desire, it is not necessary to move, because everything about her, all there is to say, is already apparent to him. Already, she says to herself, I have been received. He begins to walk toward her. This image, too, repeats itself. The only variation is the expression on his face. Sometimes he is not smiling. This is because of the passion, which is so great, greater than happiness. After a time, the picture disappears altogether, and Clarice begins to speak herself. She sees nothing, but hears her own voice. It's not your typical romance, she says. It's different. We work together. We do the planning on things. Over and over, she hears the same line. It's not your typical romance. It's not your typical romance, she says, until the third image comes. This part of the fantasy is in a restaurant. Again, Clarice herself is not pictured, but this time she can feel her back and shoulders are more tense. She can't tell how she is sitting. Are her hands on the table? Are they in her lap? Everything is still black and white, except for a few very faint pinks, greens, and gold. The flowers on the table are brushed like this, with color. He wears cufflinks, which are gold. What does she wear? In this part, they are talking. She is saying things she has never thought of before. It's amazing what she is saying, remarkable in its precision. Now she begins to see, yes, she is wearing a crisp white shirt, with a delicate collar, open. The dialogue continues, very quiet and sincere. She is telling him now what she believes. He is transfixed by her. He is deeply impressed with her understanding, and yet he himself is not belittled. It is not a matter of awe, but of just approval. At this point, she senses that he is about to give her a gift. She waits, looking unassumingly down at her hands. She waits. The image holds like this. There are the cufflinks, perhaps a waiter. In the bed, Clarice tries to focus, tenses her brow. She cannot seem to make the story continue. What gift would it be? She pictures, one by one, like exhibits at a trial, a bracelet, a book, a ring. Would it be a bracelet, several sapphires set in gold? Or would it be a book, say, something old and rare, which he has referred to before? Or is it a ring? She imagines him across the table, reaching into his pocket. Clarice cannot decide. She rolls over. She simply cannot envision the gift. The image in the restaurant is fixed, he across the table, blankness over the face, she becoming nervous. There is no present, no little box or book. Still waiting, she realizes the gift may never come. Foolishly, she has imagined this. She has been overconfident. 
silly, assuming far too much. Suddenly, Clarice begins to disappear from the fantasy, though he remains. She barely fears, feels herself in the chair. The picture widens. It begins to seem, at this point, as if her fantasy is just a story about him and that her role simply doesn't matter. He is the character. It is the story of his autonomy and his success. Finally, he is alone in the restaurant. Clarice opens her eyes. She sees the near-dark ceiling. These meetings, she says to herself, have to end. In the next part of the fantasy, which will be the last, there is no image except occasionally a page of writing in her own hand. It is a letter. Otherwise, there is no image, only her voice, calm but expressive, and a dark screen. Clarice is composing a speech or a letter of renunciation. She is feeling restless. As she composes the speech, she shifts in the bed. She wants to get up and get on with things. The speech will be long and final, touching on everything that the, that's the least bit relevant. Her voice will be round and full, as if coming from very deep in her mind. Yes, suddenly she knows that this is the way it has to be. The words have begun to come easily. It is the point when one senses that, even in the dream, there are slips and escapes, little failings, there are no guarantees. And finally I know this, that nothing is guaranteed and it doesn't hurt me. Finally I feel I can get out of bed, my legs still warm. My apartment is dark, but light from another room cuts across the hallway. I feel I'm trapped at a distance, as if in the instant I turn away from you, I have stepped out of range, out of danger, and have come to the place of my own curiosity. It is not easy to explain why I'm leaving. It started, I guess, when I was a child and I was extremely self-confident. In a kind of giddy fun, I would count the facts of myself. She's so clever, they would say. She's so clever. She's so bright. And little by little, I learned the tunes that kept me busy. In the schoolrooms, by the fireplace, I knew the sums and games. I played forever in a kind of bright actuality. This was my beautiful nation, I thought. Here are the pretty columns and special rules of my government. Then later, I became morbid, as if that were the only extension of my youth. I was dark. I began to feel that, because of my cleverness, I had to inhabit some other region of further importance to which the others couldn't point. Where there is wisdom, I thought, and I slouched and cried about some better ugliness. I had another way about me, a way of turning sharply from what the others thought best, until, when I looked back, I knew that to them I'd become a mystery. I'd achieved a kind of manhood of philosophy. They were afraid of me. You see, for me at that time, sense was flat. Sense was mapped in open territory, and I needed to get somewhere. And if what we all understood was so quickly the desks, certain paths in the woods, the dead aunts and grandfathers, the movies, I believed I was fated to take up the harder part. But eventually my morbidity seemed to grow up around me. I had my own ignorance about it. This was the thing. Eventually, you see, being smart, which had become so dark, was simply a daydreamer's category. It was a task for the blind. I wasn't really finding things. It was I, this time, who was afraid. You see, one struggles so hard to tap the uncanny and to fit the part of the extraordinary, thinking that for all the truth of what they've said, one must be made of crystal, some weird elite of glass, feeling that somewhere there's a height inside, and yet, in the end, one is always only serving. I have always served the facts. I have cried for the things that were told to me, I have signed my name to vacant agreements. 
I have simply wished and knelt down. So soon my darkness showed itself, different face, a face of loss, what I will never overcome. Before that, I had sought to be yours, invisible. I had wanted to come into the positive, which was really the way of love. I wanted it all to be true, simply, all I'd thought and what they'd said. But what would be proof, unless someone else, and then someone else again, you, had told me so? And so I loved you, and I served. You, marvelous, half clear. I thought you would hand me my hand, give me my mind. I wanted you to make me your signal, your pure sound, like a ringing that matched in scope the bluest countryside. It was all so hopeful and mortifying, founded in a painful human disproportion. The kiss was an abstraction, and in a little while my misery turned vague, imperceptible, and solid. It is not that you have deceived me. You are right, clever, you're like a worthy strategy. More, it is that I have forgotten something. I have willed myself virtuous in a travesty. I have forgotten that nothing is guaranteed, that in the moment I hold you dearest, and you, of course, hold me in orbit, that moment when it seems that the drama simply must proceed since everywhere the world is waiting, then still the details will falter. Some prop is out of place. Your brow refers to a rock. It is badly rendered. I have forgotten, in this huge and apparent necessity, the needs of the wrong. And suddenly there is a chink in the scene, a motion of my own eyes or a part of your history that is mundane. It is then that the whole story comes apart. The story is pulled apart in scraps, worn thin, while I, part onlooker, half participant, am a piece weak and free. And I can see it, the romance, declining. Its hope contains the fall. It is as if in this final moment, this only ending, I keep insisting, recalling my fist a bell in my hand, there is no perfect mind. So I leave you. As I turn away, everything about you becomes easier, like a minor solution, a tuck in the wind of my sureness. In a strange and gentle way, I love you more as I wander instead in the rooms of my home. Now the lateness matters, but I am not scared. I organize the pens and bottles on the table, look out the window, see the makings of trouble and lives. I lay my hand on the sill. I feel finally that there is a distance between my back and the ground, between my spine and the ways I can see, between love and the forms of my ability. There is a distance between. In it, I sense, there might be anything, anything at all. There could be, perhaps, the closest longing, the gravest, most fleshly crying the world has ever seen, not a mind, but a being in mind, in the word, at last, a sense, a feeling. Kenneth Koch, I'm introducing Vincent Katz. I was um, thinking just now that probably more about poetry than about anything else. Oh, start again. Still Kenneth Koch introducing Vincent Katz. I think uh, in poetry, more than any place else, the first question that one asks, and often the last, is is it really any good? About a story, you can say, what's it about? Or about a painting, you can say, what style is it in? But about poetry, it's very urgent to know if it's any good or not. Uh, I obviously think Vincent Katz's poetry is part of the relatively small amount of poetry that is really good. I think, um, I think one is so concerned with that question in poetry because poetry makes its hit very quickly and because what it communicates is 
it either communicates a sense of existence, a sense of being there, a sense of being alive and thinking and feeling things in the moment, or it doesn't communicate much. I know there's other kinds of poetry. I love Alexander Pope and the Iliad, but I'm talking about lyric poetry. And if an awful lot of poetry does not have that quality or has it only partly and one can enjoy it for the little bit of that quality it has, I think Vincent's has a lot of it. I've uh, known his poetry for quite a while. It, I always get from it um, that little heartbeat or slight heart speed up that's a signal of pleasure and excitement and, I suppose, danger. Uh, danger for anybody who reads, who, who sees a good work of art because it means you're about to have a new experience, which nobody really wants for all that we talk about it. Uh, we really would rather be comfortable, I think, though I don't mean to generalize. And danger particularly to another poet because it's sort of alarming because it seems as though if there's one other new good poet in the world that it's trouble for the rest of us. However... This turns out really not to be true because um, one is always inspired and encouraged by the example of other good poets. Um, one kind of poem Vincent writes that I think he'll read a few of tonight is, is a poem in which he catches a very evanescent impression, an impression that's vanishing the moment it appears, of a moment, an hour, a day, this impression made up not only of what he's seeing, but also what he's feeling and thinking, what he's done the day before, and so on. Such poems, a, a good example of that, which I hope we'll read, is one called That Day Again, are like convincing breaths of air. You breathe them as much as you read them. The way when you first arrive in Paris after a long absence, you breathe it as much as you see it. Or when you get to the seashore, you breathe it. Uh, I don't know how anybody can write such poetry. It's like manufacturing snowflakes... But Vincent Katz seems to be able to. Very few other poets have. Uh, Frank O'Hara, James Schuyler, Pierre Riverdi. I can't think of very many. Um, this v Vincent's poetry al always has this, this, this speed and convincingness. It's, uh, it also has this quality, which Frank O'Hara's poems have and James Schuyler's poems have, of seeming to be, a, and John Ashbery's early poetry particularly, of being sort of putting down on paper everything that's in the poet's mind at a particular time. This only works if you have a lot of things in your mind that are <laughs> worth putting down. And um, Vincent seems to have that. It also works a lot better if you have the history of poetry in your head. And if you've not only thought about it, but if you've actually translated it, read it. And Vincent's poetry seems to me, in back of the airiness and casualness, seems to me very sophisticated. Uh, just then... A personal thing to conclude. I, for years, I've been sort of waiting to see what's happening in in the young poets in New York City, because there's a certain quality, which probably I mean qualities in poetry don't really start any place. You could say it started in Whitman or in Greek poetry, but recognizably it starts in certain poems by William Carlos Williams and in a poem like Zone by Apollinaire. But it certainly is manifested very clearly in certain poems by John Ashbery and Frank O'Hara and James Schuyler, this, this kind of poem I've been describing in which the poet seems to be saying whatever's in his head and you get this sense of being someplace and of being very convinced by a moment of experience. And um, I get a lot of literary magazines and a lot of poets send me letters and I keep looking to see what's going to happen to this tradition and a lot of interesting things happen to it. But they all, most all of them, seem to be going off 
at an angle somewhere. And uh, I was right away excited by Vincent's poems because it seemed to me that there was a chance that in in our lifetimes, I would be able to see somebody picking up the ball right in the center of the field and running with it. I don't think that Vincent's poetry is really like these other poets' poetry, but that he, he's got something that they have and he's doing something new with it. And I like it a lot. Vincent? It's a lot of fun for me to be here with Kenneth tonight and to have him introduce me because uh, I've read his poems ever since I was a child, really, and especially reading uh, Co or A Season on Earth inspired me. And one of the things especially that I learned from him and among other poets, including Frank O'Hara, is that poetry could and should be fun for the writer as well as the reader. Rockaway Baby. At 12 o'clock, I roused myself from a comfortable bed, wondering why you hadn't called since you said you would, to discover I'd left the phone off the hook. So promptly I phoned you. Your mother answered coldly, as a mother should, whose daughter has apparently been snubbed. I felt extreme guilt as you complained of your lost day, and, well, what did I want to do? But I convinced you it wasn't too late to go to the beach, grabbed my red plaid shorts, shut the windows, threw my sunglasses and Patterson into a bag, put ten acts in my hair, and hurried down to Hoyt Skirmerhorn, where I met you and you forgave me. Then I promptly made you cry again. What a fool I am to always forget you were born so sensitive, so sweet and loving. And I, like a horrible fool, insist on treading upon your beautifully fragile edge. <clears throat> At last we reach the beach, rock away, and our troubles seem to melt or dissolve like a raft of ice cream floated on the boardwalk, past the island girls, and guys come in to comb their hair and blast Halen. Funny how my quiff, borrowed from their fathers, seems so alien to the younger generation of cigarette smokers. And you examine the numerous mosquito bites and bruises, a kid beams at his skybound kite, that people your thighs and limbs. Clouds dangle the sun at us. Elvis is beamed in on CBS and sings his later beautiful, soft songs. We eat pierogi and go for a swim. A man listens to the ball game and apparently brings what must be his sister into the picture. He retired six straight batters. She's wearing a shirt she bought in 1964. Later, they're on the subway with us. He's wearing a white short-sleeved shirt buttoned up to the top. Who can keep score with flashy Brooklyn blacks cruising the cars? What a trip. So what's this feeling, sitting here after you've gone? I want to call you so bad, but watch Henry Fonda and Barbara Stanwyck. Later, a little sad, I looked into your eyes alone.
Epistle, 5584. That your book sits so greenly and beautiful, pressed new pages and crisp paper folder. That your poems express such warmth of wit and urbane sentimentality. I can just picture you in your villa in the Janicolo, smoking a cigarette at the typewriter. You pause on a word, and the soft trickle of the fountain outside reaches your ears. Through opened windows, the freshness of foliage, and distantly the sweep of cars in late afternoon, the taste of sex and wine. That you, too, love words almost as much as women. This gratifies me, since it makes me your friend. But one matter remains, of little importance maybe, but bothersome, that the others, the children, laughed when I showed them Alias might have been, been inviting you to bed, or how you might easily have meant he also gave you, I know you wrote Dominam, not Domini, a house and a mistress, on whom you both exercised your passions, sharing. That they couldn't see this was not my affair. But afterwards, I sat in the sun in my room, and the day's trivialities floated away, just as cherry petals, landing on the boat pond in Central Park, touch softly, then drift across the lapping expanse, where children cry in that very important enterprise, and shadows lengthen on the asphalt walks, among scurrying of thoughts and skirts. And I looked calmly at your green cover, knowing that now we were alone, you would smoothly tell in my ear I'd been right. How foolish of the others to doubt, you would say. Of course, you knew what I meant. Then it dawned on me. That ambiguity would never leave you. And as when, on a sunny day, suddenly a storm lurks up and you see it coming on the horizon, you get up from the grass, brush the dead blades off you, and feeling a bit silly, pick up the bottle with an inch of wine left, as several car doors slam and an engine starts. Just in this way, a cloud of doubt came over me. I no longer cared if I was wrong or, or right. I simply wanted an answer. If only you'd appear and tell me I'd read it right. Or wrong if I was wrong. If you'd appeared and said, Really, old boys, sorry to disappoint, but I wasn't as racy as all that. It was just me and lesbia in that house. But let's go drown it in a couple jars. But, silence. The cars swept by outside, and a radio played in the hall. But you didn't say a word. All that was left was the serenity of poems printed on a page. And that serenity is what I feel now, even though the lovely Rubenstein piano music has stopped since it's after 1120 I hate the matter-of-fact way the BBC just shuts off at 11.20 every night, as if life suddenly ended at that particular hour, as if there weren't those who make the entry into every new day as it comes at midnight and who crave that almost inaudible, yet so important, so assuring tiny swell of music of the kind that that best of late-night programs played. WFMT with your host, George Stone. A Mahler symphony, perhaps, to start things off. Then a little Messiaen, some Ives, and of course, always Tchaikovsky. But that was in Chicago, where all the stations were great. As, for instance, Purvis Spam, introducing I'm Still in Love with You, 
told how one night Al Green was riding in a taxi in New York, and he heard the Everly Brothers on the radio singing Kathy's Clown, and it was such a beautifully simple arrangement that he went straight to a friend's house who had a pedal organ and began working on a song starting from the line, I'm wrapped up in your love. But here in England, it's very quiet. So before I slip quietly off to bed, I will bid you goodbye, friend, feeling in a strange way that you are more immediate to me than many people I know that are alive. I wish somehow we could meet, but I guess we already have. If you were alive, I would wish for happiness for you and your life. But as it is, I'll just say goodbye for now, Gaius, and end as you did, praising far beyond all she who is dearer to me than I am to myself, my light, whose life makes living sweet for me. Kumi. You were the first woman I ever... Well, you were a girl then. We stumbled down the stairs, half unconscious, sat down on the grass, and smoked a joint rolled in rainbow-colored paper. Sprinklers sprayed us in and about the trees. Walking to a party before you and I had made love, me and Paul walked behind. You and another woman went ahead. You were wearing a white dress that outlined the curves of your body. I thought how exotic and real you looked. Another time we talked downstairs about some weird feelings. Now the sun floods through late afternoon clouds and the daffodils in the street lamp boxes. The wide street is fresh and wet. Suddenly it is as though Plato himself is bursting through those clouds. Although his sun was too severe, his gift was to us that we could approach something unchangeably good. But it's hard not to feel everything is so mutable. That's the beautiful, sad lesson of the poets. Going to dinner, talking about bad blood, fate, but the blood's thicker than the mud, the pain of childhood. Later, walking the same way to a jazz bar to talk about Christianity, that pretty face, so it was wrong to banish Homer, wasn't it? And I'm glad you've written to me, and we may see each other, because it means somehow we were right. I've always kept your image firmly, now that you're a woman. This is the last poem I'll do. It's called Window Life. A thigh is in the window, followed by the rest of her leg. Someone moves further back, perhaps on the edge of the bed. Bastille Day and no fireworks. Canal hums a strictly flavored fragrance, though Rue Victor Hugo remains. Whose begonias bloom so sweet, and at night those lights... It's all like the first day of being allowed to go to the movies alone. MacDougall is ever international, but Italian girls call near the park. 
You want to get married, but you don't want children? Chocolate chocolate chip drips through fingers, and dozers pay no mind to national sentiment. Then there are the two old ladies who lean out, have leaned every day for the past forty years over the generation humming street. One drops a Kleenex from her perch to the cans below. I see that couple, strange expression couple, as though their coupling is all that unites them. Again, now talking. Someone is painting the room on a lower floor. The apartment has that all-out look. Puerto Rican kids play on the stoop, and one who looks Polynesian goes in with her mother. The street hums late afternoon. Two. A slow sun slopes, hung with rococo fringe of clouds. Distant murmur of heat accompanies the whir of traffic. From here, the rooftops form a Mediterranean landscape, streaked the odd formations of skylight and chimney, with late afternoon, some black, some silver in late solubility, while on the corner, a man sits in the recess of the corner delicatessen, reading and selling postcards. A Belgian couple pauses, takes a breath of foreignness. Three car doors slam. A pitch-green sob pulls away, the old kind, and a woman sells what from here looks like fuchsia, magenta, and turquoise under a sycamore. Flies perch. The afternoon continues to swell in the white shoes and purple skullcap of a black woman on the sidewalk. Spiller would be uneasy here, too banar, what with violet arms and orange screams. A green convertible purrs by, as earlier the trees on the park side of Fifth formed an arcade for the promenade of the middle of the world. Leaves shattered in golden foam at hand's reach, as languages blended in soporificity. There is a pause in the sweep of the sky, as a sleek blonde all in black skulks by. Ah, she's more my style thinks the cool Belgian to himself. She'd look great, her eyes a bulge on a battered, dark wharf. All the windows are empty now, even the one where TV used to play all day and night. Have they moved, or worse? It's odd how one bends others' lives to oneself, lives unknowing, and all perched on their sills of mother of pearl. The sun decodes waves of clouds. The woman in black passes back, a bag in her hand, as evening kisses afternoon and presses hot fingers to her rosy behind. Thank you. First, first, I do want to do is, is really say thank you to the Endicott Bookshop, and also to Penn, uh, which uh, of which this is one of uh, a number of really um, wonderful um, 
programs that we support, and we hope you support them too. I th I think uh, I think that um, uh, I, I I think Angela Carter is going to uh, uh, speak uh, on Sunday at Penn, right? I mean on uh, well, c keep an eye on the papers, right? <laughs> it's uh, it's one of these Sundays. No, I know it's a Sunday that I can't be there. It's now I know which it is. It's November thirteenth. <laughs> okay. Anyway, watch for it because um, we don't have a chance to um, hear her very often. Now, I, I, I want to say something about um, about Barbara Selfridge. Is I've been introducing her to one person at a time up till now. And uh, it really gives me a lot of pleasure to be able to introduce her to so many people at once. Um, I, I've, um, I can uh, say that I liked her work from the first time I read it, um, which was a long time ago, it seems to me. Uh, but I have no, no longer really have an accurate idea of time. So, but I think it was. And um, what I liked about it then uh, and still do, is, the w is, is something that's kind of wonderful. First of all, it's a way she has of stretching out, of reaching out into another life and into another voice and, and language very often. Now, this has go sometimes gotten her into trouble because um, so I, I think there was a time um, when we weren't allowed to do that politically. And, uh, I mean, we weren't really not allowed to speak for anybody but ourselves. Now, this really makes life very boring, and as for art, it really kind of, um, it, it kind of steals the meaning of it, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, the whole, one of the most important things that, w that, that can happen uh, when, you, when you write, or, or probably when you do all other artistic things, you know, is really this whole business of really stretching out, of stretching out to the other, to the other life, and, and, uh, and and the what I mean what the what the arc really is is in the stretch. It's not even in getting there. You get there, you're lucky. You know, sometimes you don't. But it's really the stretch that counts. And uh, uh, Barbara is sometimes really quite brazen in her stretching. And um, uh, uh, so you have to speak to her sometimes about that. But on on the other hand, on the other hand, it's really very good that she does. And. Um, She's she uh, she's she's worked in in very short forms, very short stories, and then um, and then medium ones and in long ones as well. What I mean to say is, uh, she really has tried to use the short story in all its uh, um, it's in all its really marvelous possibility, and uh, it's a form which uh, uh, is uh, is extremely possible. Uh, uh, I. I think I'd like to have her read now, and uh, then if I have anything else to say, I'll say it later. <laughs> she could also say it in between, because uh, it turns out that part of what Grace was leading up to is I'm reading two stories, unlike other fiction people. And um, unlike the other three readers, did you notice how slow they read? <laughs> they never sped up. We, I'm going to also read slow. <laughs> this first one is called 
Monday, her car wouldn't start. Monday, her car wouldn't start, and Anita spent all day renting a wreck and driving like crazy to the hospital two hours away, and at five, she arrived, and at five, her father wasn't dead. It was the carburetor, she found out later. At five, Anita's father was only dying, a man so pumped with fluid he'd lost, he'd gained 40 pounds, a kidneyless man who'd stopped smelling like himself. At five, her father wasn't dead, only dying, and he knew she, who she was. Anita, who works as a nurse, climbed into her father's hospital bed beside him, and her brother, so many false goodbyes already said, left. Anita's mother was stuck, a wife of 35 years stuck there doing nothing but crank up the bed, cranking it up, cranking it down again. Should I have divorced him? Anita's mother had asked her children. Do you despise me for staying with your father all these years? At five, Anita's father still knew her, but he was a man making faces, horrible faces, as if all the work of drawing air into his lungs must be done by his face. And Anita lay next to him, whispering, Let go. This body doesn't work anymore. Let it go. Anita had married that fall, partly to give her father one last party to host, partly to cover bulletin boards with pictures of him giving her away. Maybe at the end, in his brain, there wasn't enough oxygen to find comfort in an afterlife or to reconsider euthanasia. And maybe then, in his chest, there wasn't enough muscle to be his heart. The heart, they said at the autopsy, was no more than a blown-up paper bag, a paper bag trying to pump blood. At 6.30, Anita asked the nurse for more morphine. For the pain, she said. But she knew as the nurse gave it that morphine right then might cause death. Why are you doing this? Anita's father whispered, sounding angry and hurt and not possibly knowing. Five minutes later, he was dead. Five minutes later, it was 6.35, and Anita was lying in a hospital bed next to a man she couldn't recognize, either by sight or smell. For weeks, she wore her father's clothes. Here, smell this, she said. It still smells like my father. At 6.35, it was over, un unmistakably gone. But at 5, Anita's father wasn't dead, only dying, and he knew who she was. Okay. And this one is called Another Man's Son, and it's my mother's favorite story. But she also speaks sharply to me. <laughs> Another man's son. Before the story begins, I drive up. Only black men stand on this street, a half dozen of them now at nearly two on a Thursday night, Friday morning. And in the swift recognition of their glances, I see myself reduced to a political statement a white woman with a black lover. Even my car becomes white. My beloved 18-year-old bug becomes a white woman car. My lover insists that I'm a good woman. He lists my good traits in a soft French-Haitian accent. You never smoke. You never swear. You don't never steal a man's clothes. <laughs> These are all true, positive truths I overlook. And somehow, in the unexpected clarity of his vision, I can't help but feel loved. This Thursday night, Friday morning, the six men on my lover's street each stand apart. 
like strangers in a subway station who recognize each other but prefer to wait for that train to, to wait alone for that train to their destination. All six look at me, white woman driving up this time of night, but only one is the handsome, sweet-smelling man I make love to. Only he steps forward. I have business, he says. Hello, darling, he says. I have business, you talk to Jules. That's where the story begins. Not me driving up, but me half asleep in the room with Jules. Jules is a very black man, very skinny with high African cheekbones, the 38-year-old cousin of my 23-year-old lover. I am 32. Jules sits in the plastic-covered red armchair that came, like the cockroaches and the rat and the nightclub downstairs, with my lover's furnished room. At one, Jules got off work, and now he sits smoking morose, with three things before him. An invitation to come downstairs and drink, a milky bowl of cornflakes he couldn't finish, and the image of a black American woman lying in a hospital bed with the son she claims is his. How you been? Jules asked me. I ain't seen you a long time. I haven't seen you either, I agree. And there's warmth in the smiles between us. The warmth of fellow restaurant workers, conspirators against the lecherous boss we all hated. Jules still works at Riverview. BNA still puts in double shifts at minimum wage. BNA is my lover. Jules knows, and I know he knows, that the last time I saw him I was pregnant. Also, Jules must know that BNA fought for me to have the child. Kill me first, my lover told me, his painful calls interrupting those pregnant nights. Jules knows. How you been, he asks again. And before the abortion, I would have said. Help, Jules, I would have said. Tell BNA I can't have this baby. He's only 23 and he already has a son in Haiti. Oh, Jules, help me tell him it's impossible. But now the fight is over. It's late at night, and I answer, fine, and you? Jules tells me she didn't want I go to work. A son, he says, a big boy, seven months' birth. Vienna told you? Vienna did tell me. He told me, Jules, a fool. It not Jules' baby, my lover told me. I say, no. I say, Vienna didn't tell me. And I smile big and congratulate Jules. But there's something in the smile that hurts Jules. Maybe it's too pretty or too accepting of other people's tragedies. It not my child, he says. No, I say. I don't believe so, he says. <laughs> and it's because Jules left Haiti at age 10 and lived 20 years in Nassau that I hear such a clipped British accent in his, I don't believe so. I don't believe so, Jules says again. And we begin to count the ways the baby isn't his. One. Jules didn't repeat it, but I knew from my lover that Jules never came inside the lady. This might mean no penetration, as my lover is forced to practice in these two weeks following the abortion, but I think it means withdrawal. I'd mentioned pre-ejaculatory sperm, and at first BNA was surprised. You feel them inside you, pussy? He asked. Later, he was amused. He pointed to the tiny holes in my shower head. They make you pregnant, right? He laughed. Little things make you pregnant, right? Two, Jules tells me, it's too soon to be his son. Jules knows, he said, says, because he writes it down. Every time I be with a woman, I write it down, he says. Times like these, he says, you can't afford to raise another man's son. <laughs> I write it down, too, after I make love, for reasons not so different from Jules's, probably. But I don't say this. Three, Jules tells me, 
It's not his son because it doesn't look like him. It doesn't look like the mother either. The only way it resembles Jules, he says, is in the high African cheekbones. The baby has the same cheekbones. Four. Before Jules went around with this woman, he heard talk. Men's talk. Men's talk that say she'd be all around, not just one man's. That was the talk, Jules says. And what do I think that I'm doing, I wonder, nodding my head and saying, uh-huh, when a man tells me men's talk. Five, Jules says. He was seeing two or three women, he says, at the time he saw this one. That like a man do, he says. But when this woman met her rival, she be joking with she, making joke. Now you know, claimed Jules, that when a woman be in love, she be mad. She see another woman and she be mad. Jules' chin juts forward and immediately I picture them, the two black rivals, chins out and angry. Therefore we know, Jules says, that this woman had another lover at the same time she had Jules. Six isn't six, isn't a reason, but it's true. And the truth is that Jules doesn't love this woman. He loves a woman in Miami, a young woman, 19 then, 21 now, who used to work schoolyard security with Jules. That's who he loves. The woman in the hospital cries when Jules says the baby isn't his. She cries and says, take a blood test. If the blood test says the baby isn't Jules, then she won't ask him anymore. But the story isn't just about Jules. It's also about me, why I can't answer and what I would want to say. I say, birth control is hard. And I mean it not to blame, but to start towards something in defense of this woman and the son I believe is Jules. I know about that, Jules tells me. You do that because you don't want a black baby. His voice is very knowing, and suddenly I'm certain he tells my lover the same thing in the same knowing voice. Over and over I told Bienne that I didn't want any baby, but now I can't say it. Now in front of Jules I feel as if I've disappeared, first reduced into white woman, and now somehow magnified into racist. Black American woman different, Jules says, still knowingly. She liked to have baby. At this I'm relieved. This, at least, I know Jules doesn't believe. Not this close to last night's unhappy birth. And I remember that Jules and I really like each other. I think if I could just say something, something about other men's sons and the women who raised them alone, if I could just say something, then Jules could ag agree with me and we could be who we are. But the sad truth is that I never speak. Jules, I say, you're crazy. That's all. And then Jules laughs and starts telling me stories about his mother. I think of the night when I was working, killing my feet in new shoes, and Jules made me an offer. I want to give you, he said, a long, slow sit on this lap. <laughs> it was a nice offer, still tempting sometimes when I remember it. But I had already in my mind become lovers with BNA, so I said no. Vianney comes upstairs, speaks patois to Jules, and then tells me that there's a cop downstairs snorting cocaine. My lover doesn't do drugs himself, but the cop doesn't want to be left alone, and Vianney has to go back down. It doesn't make any sense, but I don't argue. I don't really mind. Jules tells me I'm tired. I am. Go to sleep, he says. Then he says, if it be my son, why she don't say me nothing before? Many times I seen this woman. I seen she be pregnant, but she don't never say nothing. If it be my son, why she don't say me nothing? I say I don't know, and I wonder. 
How is it, I wonder, that a woman like me feels freer with her body than she is with her opinion? That's this one. I know you were joking, but I'm joking back. We have some wine at the front of the um, store and some seltzer, and we have plenty of time for some conversation and, and book looking. So please stay around. Thank you.